There's a lot in a name. And when we set out to create this podcast, we selected a name that we felt fit. Bright lights, big burbs. But as we produced episodes, talked to experts, and as I re-explored this fascinating place called Mississauga, I began to see that it is not truly a suburb anymore. It's a big, vibrant city where people live, work, play, and learn. In our first episode, we talked about the importance of being curious about a place, and that when you get curious about it, you begin to care about it. And I got curious. Mississauga is colorful and deeply interesting, with its own stories, its own saga. Did I mention that locals sometimes call it saga for short? So, in the spirit of curiosity and caring, we're doing something bold. We're renaming this podcast right here, right now. Welcome to Bright Lights, Big Saga. This episode is all about juxtaposition. In episode one, we explored the fascinating history of Mississauga with a wide lens. Now we're zooming in to examine the lands around and within which the University of Toronto Mississauga, or UTM, is situated. If you take a close look, it's apparent that this place is all about juxtaposition. So what does that mean? Juxtaposition is the fact of two things being seen or placed close together with contrasting effect. And the first juxtaposition? Nature versus man-made marvels. For the best vantage point, let's go on a little tour of the campus. So I've just turned in off of Mississauga Road onto a road called the Outer Circle, which is... um, it runs along the outside of the main part of campus and on my right we've got this it's under construction but the what used to be called the north building uh, where i spent most of my years at utm uh, it was torn down recently and they're building this quite quite a lovely building in that that spot and now we're passing the white utm bus just parked on the side in front of the instructional center, the white UTM bus, you see it on the highway to Toronto and back, and you know it's students that are are um, moving from one campus to the other. Now I'm passing the the library, the Hazel McCallion Library. Hazel McCallion is the most famous mayor of Mississauga. The, um, she was mayor for years and years and years, uh, fairly recently retired. And okay, now I'm continuing around the circle. And all while while I'm looking to my right, or when I can, I can't fully look because I'm driving. But on my right are all is the cluster of all the buildings, different uh, built at different times, different construction materials, different types of architecture. It's it's quite beautiful. You've got you've got glass and metal and wood, or uh, what looks like wood, and um, cement and stone you've got it all on your right and then when on the left for most of the outer circle it's forest and then there's there's fields and there's a place where the CFL team the Toronto Argonauts used to train I don't know if they train there anymore I don't believe they do but they they used to train out here on the left so you've got this juxtaposition of 
the architecture and the busy student life and the sort of beauty of architecture in the middle and the beauty of natural space and trees and forests and rocks on on the other side it's it's an amazing juxtaposition we're in a city of close to 700,000 but there are pockets of wild everywhere and it is the particular shape of nature here in particular, the Credit River that snakes its way past the UTM campus that makes this place perfectly suitable for development. Here's Mississauga historian Matthew Wilkinson. It's that bend of the river that really lends itself to the development here. It's, it's the, 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 the available water power. There's a dry, not only does the river bend, but it drops. And so you have water power that's a natural site, and so multiple mills along here. One of UTM's esteemed professors has many stories about the unique attributes of nature in UTM's backyard. Professor Emeritus of Historical Geography, Thomas McElraith. I was at UTM from 1970 to 2005. During our interview, Professor McElraith shows me a PowerPoint filled with old maps and photographs of the area. In one picture, there's a man standing at the top of a very long staircase in the UTM woods. The back stairs. Back stairs. Think of the driveway up to the principal's house. Uh, there's a tree just before you get to the principal's house in a sort of a parking area. You can turn around area there. Okay, if you walked towards the river from there about, oh, for less than a minute, I mean about you know, a couple hundred meters. Well, not that far, a hundred meters. Uh, uh, you would come to the edge of the uh, of the drop off to the river, and if you'd been there 50 years ago, there was a staircase that looked like. Uh, I vaguely remember the staircase. It was there in the time when Tusa Wilson, the principal, lived in the house, so that would make it about 1968 to 74 or so. There's Tuzo Wilson. This is kind of fun. Uh, there's Tuzo Wilson in his best academic regalia standing to my imagination at the top of the stairs greeting a canoeist portaging a canoe up the 179 steps from the river up to the to the Lylers house and uh, sort of saying and, and you know am I on the, am I on the right trail or something and uh, wherever the canoeist went I don't know but anyhow it was one of the Susan Wilson's favorite stories of saying we came out one morning and there was somebody coming up carrying a portaging a canoe up 179 steps. Wow. So commuting commuting to school. The staircase is, 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 is long gone. I don't know if there's any remnants or any indication that you'd ever know that it was there. That's just steps away from busy main arteries through this city. And when it comes to stunning architecture, UTM has that characteristic in spades. Over the past 10 years, the campus has sprung up many new buildings that have won attention and awards. Even when the campus was first built, it was the townhouse-style residences that were the talk of the town. When the residences were built uh, in the northern part of the campus, uh, you know, across from and beyond where the, where the Oscar Peterson building is now, uh, those residences were designed in a way that, in this was 1972 or 73, designed in a way that allowed for uh, them to be converted into 
uh, affordable housing. So uh, they're a bit more like townhouses. Though. Yeah, so they were townhouse style. So that was uh, that was the thinking there. And then later on, uh, and it was considered actually quite progressive in the 1970s to have townhouse type accommodation for for groups of students with a common kitchen. And uh, but by then. 2000, uh, there was more and more demand, and so Oscar Peterson Hall got built, uh, and it's a more traditional type of university residence. So there's different kinds of accommodation. Sounds like the campus had a great plan B in case the academic thing didn't work out. But here we are today, with hundreds of students living in both these townhouse-style and updated state-of-the-art residences. This is a modern place. Every hallway and open space is filled with students texting, laughing, reading, eating, and chatting in multiple languages. In 2017, UTM had 2,930 international students out of a student population of 14,279. So they were about 20.5% international students with 26% of the new intake of students being international. That's amazing. This is a thoroughly modern and multicultural place near the core of a very modern city, a Canadian city where over one half of the total population of its residents were born outside of Canada. But it's also a place of old stories. On a trip to St. Peter's Anglican Church Cemetery, just steps uphill from UTM, Professor McElraith and Mississauga historian Matthew Wilkinson showered me with stories about this place. They used the graveyard as their roadmap for storytelling, showed me the layout, orientation, position of graves, demarcation between the Anglican corner and the Methodist corners of the graveyard. They showed me some of the architecture of the stones. And all of these are stunning time and weather-worn monuments to the deep history of the city. Some very important Canadian history happened here. Are you familiar with the uh, rebellion of the Farmers' Rebellion of 1837? Yes. Uh, William Lyon Mackenzie, who was the leader of the rebels and, and opposed to the Tory establishment, which was the authority and governing body in, in Upper Canada at, at that time in the 1830s, uh, suddenly had a price on his head when after the uh, rebellion failed in December of 1837 and he had to make his escape and he decided that he would head for the United States but he couldn't go by any direct route and in fact it took him four days of, of climb traveling by horse and wagon and various different means foot after dark for the most part and uh, he started in North Toronto north of Eglinton on Young Street and made his way northward and around and about and eventually came right through here he came uh, it was in Streetsville one night or one day perhaps and then came down what we call Streetsville Road. Mississauga Road was called Streetsville Road for many years until very recently. Uh, and must have come right past St. Peter's and then gone up Dundas Street and out to Palermo and where he picked up his way through to Burlington and, and onward up the Niagara Scarp and eventually across the Niagara Peninsula and into the United States. But he, in, on December the 8th or 9th, yeah. he would have been passing right by here, uh, supposedly unknown, there's question. Other pe some people may have known who he was and and gave him sanctuary uh, because he did escape, although there was a price on his head. Matthew Wilkinson had many more stories of that kind. Here's another one. This is probably our most famous citizen to be buried here. Um, 
This is Brevet Major General Sir Peter Adamson. Uh, KTS um, beside his name stands for Knight of the Tower and Sword. He was a uh, his official designation was Major of the Hunters Battalion, which was a British regiment who served in Portugal during the Peninsular Wars against Napoleon. So uh, again, uh, rising to the rank of Brevet Major General, just to give you an idea, you've heard of the name Isaac Brock. He's also a Major General. So, uh, so he is the highest ranking military officer to settle in this part of southern Ontario. There's, there's an old adage that says the bigger the hat, the more land you got. He, he received in excess of eight to 10,000 acres of land. Not all in one spot. He was given four to 600 acres here and there and all over the place. He hired one of our, he brought in one of his underling officers to manage his property and he chose 400 acres here in, in historic Mississauga to build his home. Uh, he established, uh, he was one of the, the founding people of two churches, both of which were called St. Peter's. There might be something to that. He had one daughter and she married three times, had children, so the Adamson name leaves his family. Mm. The, those are the battles he served in. Uh, he was wounded and knighted for his battle of Salamanca. He was uh, shot in the hand but continued to lead his troops on the storming of the city. His career is really well documented. One of our earliest known photographs uh, dating to 1863 is of him. Um, his daughter is also photographed at the time. He also served for a time, uh, when he came here he was appointed as a Colonel of the Militia in Southern, in uh, what was then Upper Canada. He also served a term as uh, Speaker of the uh, uh, Provincial Assembly. Mm -hmm. And so his title at the Provincial Assembly was Mr. Speaker, Sir General Peter Adamson, or Sir Colonel Peter Adamson. So he had this this whole handle, or, or and, and locally if you ever hear the Colonel said, or the, it's, it's him we're talking about. He's buried here, but the rest of the Adamsons are buried over there. They had a dispute over where Peter owned land and built a sawmill, oh. or had a sawmill built. Mm -hmm. And it was on the Credit River, just mm -hmm. a little bit north of us. The Reverend contended it was on his property. Peter refused it was on his property. They sued each other, and the court found in favor of the minister. And he was right. It was on the minister's property. Mm -hmm. We can see that today through surveys and whatnot. Peter Adamson, in a probably indignation of losing his suit left the area. He went to Norville, Ontario. He established a new home for himself in Norville. His daughter went with him, married a man in Nor Norville. If you go up Winston Churchill to Norville, and Norville and Winston Churchill becomes Adamson Street, a name after him. That's George uh, Georgetown. That's him. So the minister dies in 1856. Peter comes back in 1857. Peter outlived him. Peter lived till 1865. And the family records, the Adamson family, Tommy was the, uh, the historian of the Adamson family recorded that the left a note to his daughter that not to bury him anywhere near that damn man the largest stone in the cemetery the tall gray one there that is uh captain uh james beverage harris of benari's house uh, on clarkson road the museum oh, mississauga yeah. um so even though the house is down there it tells you this is kind of the who's who of historic mississauga here this gathered people from a larger geography Right behind him, the white stone with the black lettering is maybe the most prominent, uh, most significant individual in this community. That's Dr. Joseph Adamson, who is the uh, the first doctor in this community. He was also a very literate, educated man um, and held a great respect for from the people around him. Um, and uh, his funeral was one of the largest attended here because he had such a wide uh, geography that he covered. Um, Related to you? Yes, he's my seven times great grandfather. And there's the historic Springfield Public School that's now the Alumni House at the southern end of campus facing Mississauga Road. And it's at the foot of what used to be a deadly hill. Anglican Church that stands on the hill at the, at the corner of Mississauga Road and, and or as it was known for many years as the Streetsville Road uh, and, uh, and Dundas Street. 
and it was a dangerous intersection. You can see those steep hills coming down from the church and a very narrow bridge across the Dundas Street, uh, across the Credit River and Dundas Street, and a steep hill coming down from the fire station from the west. Uh, there used to be a traffic signal at the top of the hill to tell you what the traffic signal at the bottom of the hill would be like. And this was in the 1940s and 50s. Uh, and if it was red at the top of the hill, you, you, or it was going to be red at the bottom of the hill, you, you knew. But uh, I had a friend who ran an orchard over in the, uh, in the adjacent area, and, and he'd, he would describe instances of hearing screech of brakes, honking a horn, and then a crash. And, uh, you know, cars collided down there, and there's, you know, the remains of a car in one of those pictures is uh, not much left. Thank goodness for modern roads and modern cars. We see them as ordinary, but looking at the mangled mass of steel in the photograph that Professor McElrath showed me, I think they're extraordinary. And that brings us to the next juxtaposition. We're at this interesting intersection of the ordinary and extraordinary. Just outside the campus grounds, you can drive around and find tiny little subdivisions, the types of places where a large swath of the Canadian population resides. We tend to think of these divisions of land, often rectangular and orderly, as uninteresting. But go back a couple hundred years, and they hold a different kind of interest for us. This land was subdivided back then, too, often in orderly rows, much like today's subdivisions. But the maps of these places tell many stories. Here's Professor McElrath. All right. The Mississaugas. Now we'll go back to the very earliest times. This is a survey uh, event. Uh, it, it's, a, it's an event of the later 1790s in, uh, in which uh, it was reported that there was something, probably some kind of a, hurric uh, of a, of a tornado, swept through the Credit Valley right through the Arendelle or UTM campus, and is just about the earliest commentary on this area of the Lower Credit River uh, that is has been recorded anywhere, and it gives a, a sense of uh, from the survey at that time was oriented along Dundas Street with farm lots reaching back in both directions, and it was essentially uh, vacant land. There's a strip of land there that was uh, territory which the uh, Mississaugas of the Credit, the First Nations community, had uh, were retained authority over, and later, of course, they moved to the uh, the new Credit site in the in the Grand River Valley near Brantford. But this, uh, at the time of around 1800, the, the the survey very orderly kind of so it's really it was a land subdivision, much as you would have land subdivisions uh, in new tracts of land for housing uh, today go in and lay it all out in orderly rows and lines and, and people acquire pieces of land and that's what happened in uh, along this section of the Lake Ontario shore uh, between uh, the, uh, east and west from the Credit River in just before 1800. So there's these symbols on it, on the map. There's a, a cross, clergy reserve. Oh yes. Yeah, so what is I a mean, clergy the, reserve? The, the, well, uh, the, the idea of the land division in Ontario was to reserve one-seventh of the lots for the support of uh, the Anglican English Church uh, and one-seventh of the lands for the support of the Crown. And the idea was that these were scattered throughout 
uh, the countryside. Uh, they weren't all clustered in one place. They were scattered in a way that uh, as people bought up and took, uh, they had an opportunity to acquire a piece of land, demonstrate that they could clear it and farm it and start making a living there, uh, and would eventually have to pay for the title to a piece of land. If they bought the land that was not reserved either for the clergy or for the crown, uh, then the value of the lands for the clergy and the crown would increase uh, as people moved on to the adjacent lands. So you ended up with a, a landscape in which there were uh, settlers and farmers scattered across the, the, the countryside uh, on lands which hadn't been reserved for the crown or, or the clergy. But uh, gradually, as the, the thought was that as the population intensified and the number of people on the land grew, and these pieces of land that were reserved were still still unoccupied, people would start buying them just because they were then the least expensive land available. And the revenue from those purchases uh, would go into the public purse, either for the support of the church or for the support of uh, basically the administration of the crown. Uh, so that's what it was. And there were lands, there were other things that happened, trees that were good for king's masting uh, for, for the masts of the Royal Navy were reserved. There's a street down in the neighborhood called King's Masting Crescent, and it's given that name because the, the these reserved trees, in tall straight pines, perfect for masts for the Royal Navy in the in the sailing ship era, uh, they were a very important part of of the territory. And they, some of them may have been on the Crown reserves, but others were uh, just elsewhere on the lands, and people could actually be, uh, you know, summonsed and, and fined for taking down a tree which had been marked by the king's inspectors. They'd go through and say, there's a fine-looking tree for a mast, and they would put a, a chevron mark on the tree, and woe betide anybody who cut it down if you weren't working for the, for the crown or for the authorities. It makes me wonder. In 2217, when people look back at maps of Mississauga, what will they see that seems ordinary to us, but extraordinary to them? This university is a high-profile place our country's most prestigious academic institution, a place of award-winning innovation where famous public figures like astronaut Dr. Roberta Bondar, filmmaker Richie Mehta, and writer Dion Brand went to school. 14,000 students moved through here, 54,000 alumni moved through these spaces, and every one of them has a story. So I'm walking up the principal's walk and I've got beautiful forest on my left blanketed in in leaves fallen leaves because it's fall and on my right I'm looking at this pond I can see the reflection of the trees and the water of the pond it's very still there's some some lily pads and leaves floating around and and there's this beautiful stone bridge that floats above the water and and I know friends of mine have who went who went to UTM have had their wedding photos taken here it's a really romantic spot and this is a place where my husband, before we were married, when we were still dating, we used to walk by here. We used to explore this place. It's such a romantic scene. And it's, it's right next to 
a bustling university campus. It's on a bustling university campus, and it's it's just this place of serenity and romance. It's quite stunning. Set set against the backdrop of a of a thick uh, forest, just magical. It's the juxtaposition of my memories of this place as it was in the 1990s and who I was in the 1990s, young, full of questions and uncertainty, and who I am now, older and with the benefit of hindsight, able to see how this small spot in the world, with all of its various and wonderful juxtapositions, shaped me. Sound, production, and podcast concept by Joanna Zermack. Writing, narrative, and interviews by Claire Carver-Dias. Musical credits go to Evan Schaefer, Ryan Little, and Audionautics, all from the Music Archive at freemusicarchive.org. If you like what you've heard, please rate us on iTunes. It really helps.